I've realized I can be recording or I can be warm, as in I can have the heater on. So I'm trying to take less time with these intros. It is amazing how long it can take to do one of these. <laughs> I can take upwards of an hour to figure this out. I'm just trying to be less perfectionistic about it. Today's conversation is with Alison J. Barton. Alison is a Wiradjuri poet, and I've been writing poems alongside her for a number of months now. We've been meeting up at Alison's and swapping drafts with a couple of other writers. Shout out to Simone and to Lesh, and we've been having a great time. Alison's day job is in social work. As a poet, she's published widely here in Australia and overseas, and she's been recognised in a number of awards, including this year's Mascara Varuna Writers and Editors Residency, which sounds fantastic. I really should have asked her about that. Uh, I hope you have a good time, Alison. And she is about to have her first collection published, probably next year, it sounds like, with Puncher and Waltman. I was so happy when Alison said she was keen to talk with me because we get into a number of themes that I'm really interested in in this conversation. We start off by talking about the practice of psychoanalysis, which came up as we were tossing ideas back and forth via email. Alison's written about this and studied psychoanalysis. She's undergone her own psychoanalysis. And we talk about that process and also about the whole, the whole field of psychoanalysis from a feminist angle. I'll talk about some of the questions around feminism that we raise here after the interview, but I was so glad we got to dig into some of them, as well as to think through some of the questions around feminism and race. Just like when I got to speak to Ursula Robinson Shaw, I always want to be having this kind of conversation, but... It's not that easy to find someone who's willing to go there with you. So it was great to talk to Alison about this stuff. I hadn't planned to ask Alison about the upcoming referendum on The Voice, but I did. And I want to explain what that is for my overseas listeners, because you may be quite confused by the time we get to that point. So later this year, later in 2023, Australians will have a referendum to change the constitution. And the question we will be voting on is whether to recognise the First Peoples of Australia by establishing an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice to Parliament. To quote from the Australian government website on what the voice is, it's described as an independent and permanent advisory body that would give advice to the Australian Parliament and government on matters that affect the lives of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. I'll come back to that again after the interview, but essentially that's what we're talking about when we get to that point in the conversation. At the end, we also talk a little bit about support and mentorship, poetic elders, the other people around us who make our writing possible, who guide the way, which is obviously another theme that I care a lot about, and I like to draw out with people. So I'll be back again at the end, but for now, here is Alison J. Barton. Yeah, so as we were going back and forth on email, you mentioned psychoanalysis, and I got mm. really excited because it's something that I feel like is sort of adjacent to the things I think about. 
but I know almost nothing about it. Right, okay. So I was wondering if you can unpack for me just to start, what's the difference between psychoanalysis and psychiatry slash psychotherapy? Sure, yep. Um, I guess the first thing to say would be um, I'm not an expert in these areas at all. Um, <clears throat> so I have studied psychoanalysis um, and I have undergone psychoanalysis. And if you're training to be an analyst, um, there are there's, there's considered three aspects of the training and, and the first and most important is to undergo your own analysis. To start with? That, you know, concurrently with doing oh, concurrently. The, the theoretical training. Right. Yep. Um, and I was involved with the Lacanian analysts in Melbourne. And I have written a little bit about psychoanalytic theory and about the early theorists, in particular Freud, obviously, and um, Lacan. Um, and some of the feminist um, theorists that stemmed from, from them. But in terms of um, differences between psychoanalysis and psychotherapy, I, I, um, when, when you and I had, had mentioned this to one another, I remember thinking, I don't actually know what the difference is. Mm. And um, it's, I, I sort of think the definitions of these two modes of therapy are really elusive it's it's even really difficult to get therapists and analysts to articulate the difference because they can be a bit evasive when you ask them direct questions <laughs> um but certainly in terms of psychiatry that's quite different because that's um you know that's more uh has its place in the medical world of course there's a therapeutic element there can be a therapeutic element to the way psychiatrists practice um, but I would suggest they use a medical model perhaps as their guiding their guiding mode or theory if you like mm. Mm. so w without going into the detail mm. what was it like when you underwent your own analysis what oh, happened yeah it's um it's really transformational so it it, it fundamentally adjusts the way that you view not only yourself but the world um, and it's yeah I think it, it gives you a, a really like foundational um, way of understanding human behavior and human relationships and and the way that things play out systemically and, and in, in all kind of areas of life and I suppose you know I could potentially say and this is not always true, but potentially one of the differences between psychoanalysis and psychotherapy is psychoanalysis is usually, I think it's correct to say, conducted with the patient on the couch and the analyst sitting behind them in the old fashioned style that in the way that Freud practiced. Whereas psychotherapy can be done face to face, it can be done on the couch too, but um, perhaps there's a bit more flexibility with psychotherapy. Um, and the, um, the idea with the analyst sitting behind the patient is to aid the process of the patient making projections onto their analyst in order to figure out, you know, certain things that have happened in their life or certain to understand certain relationships. But I would temper all of this by saying 
I actually know nothing <laughs> and everybody's analysis looks different right yeah, yeah, yeah. so yeah while I've read some theory and had my own experience like I can't speak for all I can't speak for the industry and I can't speak for all analysts nor for all patients hmm. that's totally fair hmm. I can see though the logic in having mm-hmm. the therapist I guess hidden for mm. lack of a better word yep when I see my psychologist, who I've been seeing for like over a decade now, right, um, it is a bit like talking to a girlfriend. Interesting. Like she's yes. about my age, and I catch myself trying to make her laugh. Yes. And yes. All that kind of thing. So it's yeah. like, I have had the thought recently where I'm like, mm. <laughs> this is getting very friendly <laughs> at this point. Like, I don't know. Maybe maybe I need somebody who's a bit more. There's a detachment mm. that's maybe missing now. I don't know. And I don't think you're alone in what you've described. I think I've got friends who have, have said the same thing. You know, they've seen a um, counsellor or a therapist um, long term and the relationship shifts. And that is also true in an analysis. I was in analysis for 10 years and, and certainly there was there were certainly shifts in our relationship. But the role of the analyst is to hold that boundary and um, it's pretty rare that you'll get anything from them full stop really Mm. but also i mean they'll give you their interpretations and their analyses but it's sporadic that the main point of the session is for you to talk in stream of consciousness style but you it's it's you don't get to know them as well as you perhaps might in a psychology setting or a, counts- a general counselling setting. Mm. I could tell you probably five things about my analyst that I know. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's probably probably true of my mm. psychologist too, but mm-hmm. but there is just something about the fact of facing her, we're making eye contact. There's a yes. whole, I mean, as we're doing now, right, in this interview, we're both, mm. we're sitting on a couch, we're facing each other. Yep. There's a whole lot going on. That's why I love doing face-to-face interviews and mm-hmm. not talking to people over Zoom because mm-hmm. you can just do a lot more. There's a lot more happening. Yes. Yeah. That's true. That's true. It's, yeah. So I guess just to really put myself out there, I'm currently in psychotherapy um, and so... I do have the face-to-face element with that as well. And it, it is really interesting having had both both experiences. Um, and then there's certainly merit to both um, and perhaps drawbacks to both too. But, yeah, you're right. That we, we, I think we bring a lot to those face-to-face encounters. Mm. And, and there's a lot going on unconsciously too for both parties. I bet. And I think it's it's the therapist's role to be very aware of that as well i can what i can say about my psychotherapist he he practices in a very psychoanalytic way so he is spends most of the session listening to me and every now and then he'll interject with interpretations Um, and interestingly he is studying to be a psychoanalyst um, or training rather to be a psychoanalyst and he happens to be a psychiatrist as well so he has, is perhaps influenced by all three of those modes mm-hmm. um, or modalities. Um, but yeah, I just find that stuff fascinating. You know, I think it's the explorations of the unconscious that I find really interesting. Um, and actually, I think 
relate a lot to writing in general, but also poetry, because I think we, when we write, we reveal things of ourselves that we don't realise at the time of writing. Yeah. And perhaps that's particularly true of poetry. But I'm interested to hear what you think about that. Yeah, no, I mean, that's why I try to leave a poem alone for yes. a good while. Yes. And I don't always succeed at that. And I've definitely sent stuff out before I really saw what it was doing. Yes. And uh, yeah, that's, that's right. It's always a bit shocking to realise. It is. What you had in there. That's right, yeah. You can look back at something years later and think, gosh, I really put myself out there. With yeah, that yeah. Piece. I, I like showed this, <laughs> I revealed this thing that was really unintended. Yes. Yeah. It, it reminds me of, um, you know, you might be in the workplace and, and you might have a colleague that you're somewhat close with and they'll come in in the morning and share the dream that they had the mm. night before. Mm. And I always think, I don't think you realise what you're actually revealing about yourself here. <laughs> because people describe their dreams as though they're detached from them, as though they didn't conjure it themselves. Yeah. And they might say, oh, I had a dream about you and you were doing X, Y and Z without realising you had me doing those things in your mind. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> That's yeah. about you, not me. <laughs> yeah, it didn't just happen independently. Yes, yeah. It's, yeah, it's fascinating. Coming back to the Lacan thing, mm. I ended up dropping in on a lecture of Justin Clemens mm. maybe, God, eight years ago or something, where because he, he talks and writes quite a bit about Lacan. Mm. Mm -hmm. And the only, well, I remember maybe three things from that lecture, but one of the things I remember that stood out to me mm. was something that he said, I think kind of offhand, about how Lacan was not the most popular guy with feminists. Yeah. And so I wonder about the the squaring of that, mm. given that you have a feminist sensibility. You've mm. also been in Lacan Lacanian psychoanalysis. Mm -hmm. Did you feel that tension or is it just not relevant? It's it is relevant. And, and this is a really complex area in, in my thinking. Um, and of course, um, Freud was not exempt from this accusation too. He is famously regarded as um, misogynist. Um, my view on that, and I've had many debates with friends who have views on Freud, is that I think there's a fundamental misunderstanding of what Freud was saying and, and often in fact, I would almost say universally, the people who hold this position on Freud have not read Freud's work. They've read secondary sources. The position that he is a misogynist? Yes, yep. yes. Um, so because I have read, Freud, I haven't read the, every volume of his work, but I've read numerous volumes. I wrote my thesis on um a particular theory of his. So I read the relevant works for that. Um, and, and people, I, I believe there's a, there's a really widespread misunderstanding about Freud's, um, Freud's view on women. And when it comes to Lacan, you know, you and I have talked before Alice about, um, 
his theory is famously difficult to grasp. And though I have read his work and I have written about him and, well, you might say I have studied Lacan, I, I would never presume to fully understand his theory because it is, it's really complex. Um, and, and, you know, that's why, um, why, why reading circles exist for Freud and Lacan, because the work is notoriously difficult to grasp. Right. And the, um, there's an understanding that if we do it together, if we read together, we'll, we'll, it will aid or enhance our learning. Mm. But to your original question, yes, there's a tension for me. And the tension is not that I think... Freud or Lacan were fundamentally sexist or misogynist, but that psychoanalysis depends on the analyst telling you something that you can't see about yourself. So there's a there's a um, there's a power in that, and or there's a you know there's a power dynamic there, as there is with any therapist, but perhaps more so in psychoanalysis. Um, where you're being told what's going on at an unconscious level and and you have to trust your analyst you have to you you to a certain extent rely on on that on that interpretation and it might it often conflicts with what's happening for you at a conscious level mm. so that in a way that's like the antithesis of feminist theory or feminist values which is to center or um, privilege a woman's perspective you know and in, in this case your analyst was a male my psychoanalyst was female right my psychotherapist is male right okay um so there there exists a tension in in so far as um you in in psychoanalysis you're encouraged to there's this sort of phrase that can get used around taking responsibility right so if you're presenting material let's just say for example traumatic material and your analyst encourages you to uh, examine your own role in that that's really really fraught Mm. and and there Mm. is a there's a critique within the feminist community, if you like. You know, in my day job, I um, work in a, a really powerful sort of feminist environment. And there is a critique of that idea. But at the same time, the, those who critique are not necessarily, you know, denouncing psychoanalysis. They're just working with the complexity of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. D- does that make sense? Yeah, no, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And that was sort of the sense I got in that lecture and Mm. and also um we've got antonia pont's collection here yeah you will not know in advance what you'll feel really great book amazing Mm. teacher and antonia knows quite a bit about psychoanalysis right as far as i can gather and Mm -hmm. is also uh, a bit of a you know feminist teacher of mine okay like she seems to be able to to work with with this tension as well to just kind of like acknowledge Mm. like there are problems yes also there's value. Yes, yes. And let's keep the good stuff and keep questioning the difficult stuff. Yeah, I don't, yeah, I, I, I agree with that. I don't think it's insurmountable. And I'd be very interested to, to learn. I've never um, been taught by Antonia, but I'd be interested to understand her view on these issues. Because I, I don't think the theory is fundamentally sexist, but 
in terms of it does have like a material consequence the way that the the way that it is practiced there is a material consequence and that is you know women are in psychoanalysis and they're being told well here's what you think at an unconscious level and that might not the woman might not agree with that mm. it's yeah it's um it's it relates to power i think mm. yeah and it is that thing of like as long as both parties are totally aware of that like who's got the power and when and yes how what they're wielding it for yes then we might be okay <laughs> yes that's that's probably the best we can do yeah. i think i think the analyst has much more responsibility than the patient of course yeah yeah yeah, yeah. sticking with the with the feminist angle for a minute mm. longer mm-hmm. you um, specify in your Insta bio, mm. not that I was online stalking you, that you are, uh, that Crenshaw intersectionality is important to your feminism. Mm. And I'd really just love to unpack that term. Mm. When I looked it up, I realized exactly what it was, but I'd never heard it used before. Right. Um, though I imagine you had heard the phrase intersectional feminism before. Yes, yes. definitely. Yeah. So intersectional feminism is, I would suggest has had a bit of a heyday in the last probably 10 years though it's a um, theory that came out of I think the late 80s if I remember correctly and it that that phrase intersectional feminism was um, coined by the theorist the feminist theorist Kimberly Crenshaw so there, there are a cohort of um, people who identify as intersectional feminists who understand that who know that I also suspect there's a cohort who don't know that um, that a black American woman created that theory, that that is her theory. And so I very boldly invented this phrase, Crenshaw intersectional, because I think it's critical that we, that, that we, that we cite our sources, right? Particularly when it comes to ideas that have come out of the black community. It happens a lot, you know, even when you when you think about a word that gets used a lot lately by white people, which is woke. That word actually came from the black American community. Black people used it to each other to 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 ask one another, are you awake to the violence that is happening to us? Are you awake to systemic racist violence? God, it's been so corrupted from that. Like, it's got right. nothing to do with that anymore. Right. It's... So well, it got taken. Yeah. Once again, something got taken from black women and appropriated by white people. And I know the, the word appropriation gets thrown around a lot, but I think that it really relates to this. I think it's really important um, in, in this particular area. Um, and, and now... There's this idea that that word is like it's sort of apparent that white people think they own that word. Um, and, and the irony of it is that they're using it to indicate that they are extremely liberal or that they have deep understandings of oppression or the oppression of others and so on. But actually, I don't think they're aware that that phrase was that there was rather that word woke was stolen. Mm. Um, so, so for those reasons, 
I'm trying to popularise the phrase Crenshaw intersectional. <laughs> mm. Yeah. Mm. How do you feel about... This is such a like annoying way to have to phrase this, but I can't think of anything, any other... Can't think of a better way to do it right this second, but how comfortable do you feel with the word feminist at the moment? Mm. I know what you're asking. And part of me feels torn, but I think because of my age, because of the, the era in which I did do my gender studies degree, which was probably almost 15 years ago, it's something that I identify with. I don't, I don't know that I can let it go. And, and the thing that I have always thought about feminism, the word and the theory, is that it is many different things. It is not one thing. Yeah, so I would be loath to let it go at, at this point. I'm not saying I won't change in future. And I'm always happy to have a debate with people, always happy to talk things through and happy to be wrong as well. Love to think about things from new perspectives and learn more but I do understand what you're saying and it is fraught it has become a dirty word I think for different reasons to why it was a dirty word before yeah well maybe maybe we should try to unpack that a tiny bit Mm. because I think I've only just sort of started realizing very recently just how bad things have become Okay. Um, and I'm, like you, loath to retire that mm. word. It's always been very important to me. But I suppose when you look at the landscape, mm-hmm. it's a bit like, well, what did we achieve and at what mm. cost? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. And we, uh, when I say we in that sentence, I suppose what I'm really saying is like um, white feminists. That's right. <laughs> So there's that. do the best job. <laughs> right. That's right. Um, so there's that. And, and then I think within the feminist community, for want of a better word, if we can say that, there is a critique of that. Um, and so we've tried to tidy things up and be more inclusive and so on. But, but the, I think the modern critique of or issue with the word feminist is that it's become it's actually become synonymous with turf right yeah that's i i I don't think people are are, um distinguishing the two now god that's that's actually fucking awful to think about um yeah Yeah. but i think you're right yes (laughs) yeah so i i think there's a generation of of people younger people let's say what are they millennials no they're the younger one is it alpha i'm not sure what i think it's alphas yeah it could be yeah i i don't think they'd be using the f word yeah um because then all of a sudden it's jk rowling correct yeah correct and yeah total like who would want to have come within like cooey of that correct yeah that's right (laughs) that's right so but I'm yet to think of a better word. Mm. As I said, I'd love to hear one. If someone's got one, great, let's talk about it. Let's yeah. see. 
yeah. and then and then you you and I, Alice, we can decide if that's the new word. We, <laughs> okay. we can be the authority on it. Oh, that sounds really good. <laughs> um, yeah, I I just before you, you you sort of glanced past something which I think is really really interesting, where you said we've become more in- inclusive. We've tried, we've, but the yeah, exactly. It's like I feel as if, and I know that I have definitely done this when I've been creating creating spaces or whatever the fuck mm-hmm. um <laughs> like you'll say like it's women and non-binary and trans or it's mm-hmm. women if you identify as a woman come along mm-hmm. and but it's like we never really had a conversation or really asked anyone what they wanted right we just still kind of top down decided what was gonna what it was gonna <laughs> be and we didn't have any uncomfortable chats ever and yep. now I pat myself yep. on the back and go, okay, yeah, I, did I did the inclusivity yeah. work yeah. on my own. <laughs> yeah. Well, I actually feel that, and, you know, when I did my gender studies degree 15 years ago, we talked a lot about trans rights. It wasn't popular back then, but we did. Of course, there's always been a dialogue about it, right? But when I say it wasn't popular, I mean not everybody was talking about it. But I think... There's also an issue of race inclusivity. And as I said, that, that has been critiqued within feminist forums, communities, whatever. Um, and, and, and people are trying to do better. But I agree with you. I think it's still white-led in a way, you know. And, and particularly in Australia where we um, have been so oppressed that there hasn't been much space for us for black women to to run the show mm. Mm. this is this is taking you fairly far off the topic of of what i put on the page here so feel free to mm-hmm. just say no i don't want to go there and we can cut it out <laughs> That's but, fine. but i i wonder if you would care to talk about at all what what it feels like to be um, an Indigenous woman in Australia mm. at this particular moment, mm. 2023, we're in June now. Um, yeah, it's a really hard time. And I've, I've got to say, I am not reading the news at the moment. Good. Mm. It's a, it's a self-preservation uh, tactic. Look, it's, we, and as you would know, Alice, there's really mixed um, views within the Indigenous community about the voice. But for me, and, and I, I fully understand the critiques of it, and I have people in the Indigenous community that I fully respect and I really regard their views highly, and they don't want the voice. They're going to vote no. For me, I can't bear to receive a no result. I just can't. Though I do think treaty is more important, I can't bear to not get a yes. So... I'm saying that to people and I want people to vote yes, obviously. And, you know, someone put it to me last week and I went to the um, Williamstown Literary Festival last weekend. I went to this particular talk and one of the panellists said, how gracious have Indigenous people been to us? This this person was white. Um, How generous that we get asked you know, can you please give us a voice? Like it's, it's patronizing. It's problematic that it's happening in this way. Mm, But mm. I, what he said really 
resonated with me and yeah the community has been incredibly generous over time you know over a hundred years we've mm. had various referenda and it we, we keep asking for things and we do or don't get it and then change is so incremental and so slow but mm. I though I do have a critique of the voice I can't face a no vote so please everybody vote yes yeah no I, I mean coming from a completely different place but I do I do feel exactly the same yes. I just I said to my partner the other night I just don't know how we survive a no vote I don't either I don't either I, I the only thing I think that the only way I think we can survive it is by having that cohort of Indigenous people become more front and centre, having their perspective more front and centre and, and there being some capacity for some more activism towards treaty and some more, you know, some more dialogue about, okay, why didn't you want it and what do we do next? Mm, mm, um, mm. But I think unless the general population say yes to this, well, let, well, let's put it this way. If they say no, are they even willing to have further dialogue? I would suggest not. Yeah, because there might be those those well thought through like reasons to say no that, that yeah. come from a particular place. But yeah. like, that's, yeah, not everyone. Yeah, it's, it's yeah. going to be fascinating. Mm. The result is going to be fascinating, but it's going to be it's going to be devastating if it's a no mm. for me and I think for a lot of people. It's just a yes is just going to invigorate me. I think it's, it's going to, it's, I would see it as the beginning of some more important change to come. That's, that's my view. Yeah. Mm. Well, yeah, like I said, I, I just took you there with zero warning. So we can, good. we can think about whether, you know, if you change your mind later, I can that's take it fine. out. But I really appreciate you going there of course no um, worries happy to talk about anything yeah well so that one of the other things that um that is we're sort of circling around in this conversation is like uh teachers and maybe even um elders in some way mm. um and last time we caught up we we do a little uh, poetry group here in your lovely house okay. and last time we <laughs> caught up you mentioned writing advice from janine leon um who suggested something really simple, but something I've never done, which mm. is to get a piece of paper, put it on your poem and just like work your way down line by line. Just check every single line mm -hmm. that you're happy with it, that it's doing what you want to do. Mm. Um, I was wondering if there were other things like that that you wanted to, to bring up just mm. for the, maybe the newer poets who are listening. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, I was really fortunate to be mentored by Janine um, with my poetry. And that was a strategy that she taught me. And it's so simple, and yet I'd never thought of it. She literally says, get a ruler. And as you said, Alice, go down the poem line by line and, and have a look at any words that don't need to be there. That, and that will really highlight each line it'll kind of magnify that line to you and you, you will see words that don't need to be there or phrases that need to be rephrased or something. Um, I'm trying to think of other practical things. Um, Janine and I talked a lot about, in the time that we worked together, we talked a lot about political poetry 
and I, I write a lot of political poetry and a couple of things probably stand out to me in terms of advice I received from her. So one is she encourages poets to um, watch the news, though we've both just said we've stopped watching the news. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> I don't know if I can start, but okay. <laughs> to while, while you're doing your daily writing, put the news on and see what comes to you. Yeah. Um, make, make sure it's ABC or SBS just to try and keep yourself safe. But <laughs> um, get your notepad out and do your writing while the news is on. Or alternative, she, she said watch the news. Or, or watch, um, she, she talked about perhaps watching Q&A or Insight or something. And you could take that further. You could get the newspaper out and you could do some reading and some writing simultaneously. Mm-hmm. Another method she taught me, I was once writing a, um, what you, you, it was a redacted poem. Some people might refer to it as a found poem, but I think it's more a redaction poem. So I took an, a quite well-known historic letter that was written by the head of a mission in the 1800s. And uh, look, I, I won't go into the content of the letter, but he was essentially he'd been accused of um, maltreating people on the mission, believe it or not. Mm. Um, and he was writing to the editor of the Geelong Advertiser to defend himself. So it was published in the paper. So I took the poem and I redacted. Oh, sorry, I took the letter and I redacted it and turned it into a poem to say what I thought he was really trying to say. This comes back to what we were talking about earlier, what I think he was really getting at, perhaps unconsciously. Mm. Um, And Janine, she had suggested that I find an historic document and I redact it. Um, And she, we went over the poem numerous times together and she would say, keep reading the letter and, and, See what else you want to include. Have you missed any key themes? Yeah, so Janine is quite political. And I think, and for me, going over, you know, the archive and Australian um, history is really, that's really topical in my poetry. That's of interest to me. So that's that maybe niche and maybe not every poet out there would want to do that. But um, if you are interested in writing political poetry, then it's a good, it's a good method. Mm. Um yeah, it's also a good way to educate yourself on what's happened here. Yeah, mm. absolutely. Yeah, I, I remember looking at um, Joseph Banks' diaries when I was in London. Oh. And yeah, just like horrendous stuff in there. Okay. <laughs> it's like, yeah. you yeah, know, yeah. it's not about um, plants. <laughs> the record. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, yeah. Um, that's a tough thing yeah. to do. Yeah, yeah. To yeah. expose yourself to. Yeah. yeah. Well, I guess just as a just as a final sort of theme, you actually have your first collection mm. in nearing its final stages, mm. and um, I was just wondering what that what that feels like. It's very exciting. I'm very I feel very fortunate to have that coming out. I don't know when it's coming out, um, but I have accepted an offer with Punter and Watman. Um, I was hopeful it might happen this year, but I think it potentially next year. And yeah, I'm really excited to be published with them and to start the editing process with them. Mm. Yeah, it feels like a really um, exciting moment in my poetry career. Who's been part of getting that 
like working it up with you have you had any particular has it been a solo effort or have you had other people yeah no it certainly wasn't a solo effort it's it is of course all my work but um my first mentor uh in poetry was claire gaskin and she was just fabulous um she uh she still offers mentoring services and if anybody in Melbourne or potentially anywhere around Australia is um looking for a mentor I highly recommend Claire um she's a she's a really um encouraging and knowledgeable mentor so I had the benefit of working with her and she you know I didn't work with her for all that long perhaps six months but the principles that she taught me about writing and poetry influenced my writing all the time. Mm. I still think of what things that Claire has told me and um, I, yeah, I use her advice in my writing. So she is certainly, um, has certainly been a um, critical part of the production of that book. Um, and also Janine Lane. She, mm. um, she, she helped me refine the manuscript um, and I, I broke it up into three sections and she gave me some guidance in how I might do that. And um, without her input, I don't think it would have been as sharp. Mm. So I really owe so much to yeah, the expertise of Janine and Claire. I've, I've heard that about both of them from multiple mm. people and mm. it is just such a wonderful thing to have like yeah and elder women just kind of guiding you i yeah and janine is actually one of my elders too she and oh I wow okay i didn't realize that women oh there you go <laughs> um and janine is an incredibly generous supporter of indigenous writers um she she is encouraging and and yeah just generous with her time and her expertise she's incredible so yeah she's she's an asset to the poetry scene and in particular to indigenous poets she's she's got time for you yeah um yeah so i, I feel very fortunate mm. I, I still remember when i was um interviewing her we were in her office and her email notifications were going off mm. Almost constantly. <laughs> it's just like, oh, I feel so bad taking up an hour of your time, oh, but also like so happy to talk to you. And yeah, she's incredibly busy. Yeah, and and um, I imagine that would be quite taxing on her. Yeah, um, but she she does so much, and I think I feel you know I sense that she gets pulled in all sorts of directions all the time, and sometimes she might have to step back from that and give herself a break but um it says something about her that she's so in demand but um yeah I expect I suspect it's it's a bit taxing I mm. think that's her what you just described I think that's her life constant emails constant, constant emails. calls and yeah. yet you know whenever I text her she texts me straight back and yeah. um yeah she's she's incredible was Alison so happy she wanted to come on the show it's not always easy to let someone invade your house with a microphone in fact it probably never is easy so thank you Alison 
as I said to Alison and to Lesh and Simone, that little writing circle that we have going at the moment has been one of the things that has actually got me back to any kind of poetry writing. So I appreciate this conversation and I so appreciate Alison having us over to do that work together. Otherwise, I don't know. I don't really know that I'd be doing much of anything. I do want to come back to two of the big issues that we raised in that conversation, feminism and the voice. I want to point any listener who isn't as aware of the conversation being created and inflamed by people referred to as TERFs, trans-exclusionary radical feminists. If you don't really know what that's about, I'm going to point you towards a couple of videos by the incredible Natalie Wynn, also known as ContraPoints. ContraPoints has a fantastic library of videos on all kinds of topics. The ones that I'll link to, not only are they some of the best researched pieces that I've seen on these issues, but they're really entertaining. It's a really fun way to learn about what I can only assume for Natalie is a deeply painful topic to be discussing. The JK Rowling episode in particular is one of the better things I've seen online and really meticulously unpacks where these ideas have come from, how they've taken hold, and the incredibly shaky ground that they are built on. I do want to make one other point before I sign off. We talked a little bit about the referendum, we talked about The Voice. I want to talk about this directly on my own because in two separate professional contexts that I have been involved in, I've encountered a position of no position. In other words, organisations that I've been connected with have decided to officially take the stance that they have no stance on the voice on this referendum. When the referendum is called later this year, we will all go to the ballot box, unless we want to pay a fine. And it is possible, of course, to just scribble on the page and submit a donkey vote. You can have no stance. Individually, you can simply choose to erase your say if you want to. And I'm willing to entertain the idea that some people truly have no opinion, but that's on an individual level. At an organizational level, my suspicion is that taking no stance as an organization is a position driven entirely by fear. The fear that the organization's stance might alienate some group, that the organization might lose support in some way. It's driven by a fear that the organization will lose something. So in that case, I don't believe that it's a case of an organization or the leadership of that organization not having a stance. I believe it is a case of those leaders feeling that the stance they have is going to upset someone. And so they are not willing to say what it is. This issue is too important to not have a stance on. I can't make the organizations that I have these professional ties to take a public stance, of course. <laughs> I can't do that. <laughs> I have absolutely no power in these organizations. But 
I can take my own public stance, which I hope is obvious by now, is to support the yes vote, to vote in favour of the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice to parliament. We are dragging our heels as a country. And to echo what was said at the Williamstown Poetry Festival, our First Nations people have been exceptionally patient. It is more than time 